The question of whether Jesus Christ rose from the dead is an historical question that should be studied using the methods of historical inquiry. However, some scholars have argued that historical knowledge is not possible because all historians are a product of their time or historians are unable to avoid bias in historical interpretation. If this is true, then knowledge regarding Jesus' life, death, and resurrection would be impossible. So in this episode, I will be discussing the possibility of historical knowledge and arguing that objective knowledge of history is possible and obtainable. I'm going to explain and answer major objections to the knowability of history, so stick around and find out how it is rational to believe that our knowledge of the past is objective knowledge, although it might not be absolutely certain. Welcome back, everyone. In this lecture, I'm going to be talking about the possibility of objective historical knowledge. Um, as you heard in the introduction, uh, many people have claimed that we can't uh, have objective knowledge of what has happened in the past. And of course, that would be problematic for Christianity, right? Because we've already mentioned that uh, Christianity is based in a claim that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. This is a historical claim, um, also a claim about the supernatural, and that's why we talked about the possibility of miracles in our last lecture. In this lecture, we want to defend that second part, the fact that it happened in history. Um, so uh, we want to be careful to um, understand why uh, we can know uh, things that happened in history. And when we make claims about what happened in the past, we're not just making subjective more like uh, claims that are more like opinion, and we're actually making objective claims about reality. So that's what we'll be talking about in this lecture. Um, I'll be talking about objections to historical, uh, objective historical knowledge, and I'll be answering those. Um, before we get started, I wanted to, like we usually do, I wanted to uh, present to you a uh, passage from the Bible. And um, this is one of my favorites when thinking about the Bible and history. It comes from uh, Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 4. So it says, Many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as, just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. So it, is also, so it also seemed good to me, since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first, to write to you in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. Okay? Um, I, I just, I don't have much to say about this passage. Uh, don't really have any insight of the original languages or anything. I just think this is a great passage when thinking about the Bible in general, but especially the New Testament, and how it, it really is a collection of documents and manuscripts, many of which uh, just straight up claim to be um, historical eyewitness accounts. Um, I think this one is interesting um, you know, maybe Luke didn't see everything with his own eyes. Th that's actually something interesting. If you ever uh, read through the book of Acts, you might notice that, of course, the book of Acts is, is uh, traditionally thought to have been authored by Luke, who was an assistant to the Apostle Paul. But if you pay attention when you're reading the book of Acts, you'll see that a lot of it's written in the third person describing the events um, from a third personal neutral perspective and then sometimes in the story especially when it has to do with Paul all of a sudden the the perspective switches to the first person like Luke the author was actually there uh, so I always thought that was interesting but another thing I thought is interesting or I think is interesting about Luke's gospel especially is that um, you know at the very beginning he says look I, I wrote this whole thing because I wanted to make uh, I, I wanted a catalog, you know, I wanted to uh, 
put together all the evidence from eyewitnesses to let people know what happened. Um, uh, so, you know, he's saying it's historical. Also, there's some interesting details I'll talk about here in a second. But before I do, I just wanted to read a quote that I have enjoyed that I read about Luke's gospel. This is from Andreas uh, Kostenberger, um, who is a, a biblical scholar. Uh, he wrote this in the Holman Apologetics Commentary on the Bible. He says, Although the Christian faith was new, Luke shows that it was rooted in old promises and the long-awaited salvation program of God. In the ancient world, people viewed new religions with suspicion. Luke legitimized the faith by showing how Jesus fulfilled promises God made to the patriarchs and prophets. Um, so yeah, th this quote just reminds, reminds me that most world religions had already been established long before the first century. Uh, so it was actually pretty difficult. It would be about as difficult as starting a new religion today, right? People are set in their ways, and they're going to be skeptical uh, of new belief systems, and they're not really going to want to you know, change their beliefs they've held their whole lives unless we uh, were, you know, uh, encountered something just uh, worldview-shaking, you know, something that we couldn't deny, so we had to change our beliefs about the world. And uh, Luke grounds his proclamation of the gospel and proclamation of Jesus Christ as Lord in historical events. And apparently this was uh, this, uh, the evidence, especially in the first century, was strong enough to get all these people to uh, not only convert to Christianity, but give their lives. But yeah, like I said, I think this passage is interesting because... Uh, and Luke's gospel is interesting because, like I said, at the, at the very beginning of it, he says that he went and talked to original eyewitnesses. And then whenever you read his narrative, sometimes uh, it gives personal information that only someone who had contact with that person would be able to know. You know, like, for example, uh, Luke chapter 1, verses 17 through 18 says, After seeing them, they reported the message they were told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary was treasuring up all these things in her heart and meditating on them. Uh, later on in the narrative it says, Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. His mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with people. Uh, that's Luke 1, uh, verses 51 through 52. But it, it just talks about how Mary is treasuring these things that happened to her in her heart. No other gospel mentions things like that. And it just seems to me like Luke uh, probably went and talked to uh, Mary during his life and, and, and interviewed her for his gospel. So I think that's interesting. And uh, we'll, we'll talk about later on about how uh, historians and archaeologists have discovered that Luke, especially, uh, well, his not only his gospel, but especially Acts, both of these books are incredibly historically accurate. Uh, even, even kind of overturning beliefs about uh, the ancient world sometimes. And, and, I, and I say that because some people thought that Luke was just obviously wrong, and then later on they realized that he actually was right about what he the, some of the things he was describing about the ancient world. So pretty interesting, but uh, a good passage to start us off thinking about historical knowledge in the Bible. Um, we In this series, we have been doing questions for reflection. Uh, these are just things to maybe interact with, uh, a lot of times I ask these questions because I'm trying to emphasize major important points, uh, but you can just use these. You can ignore them. You can you can use them. If you're watching this on a video, maybe you can answer these in a comment. If you're listening to this on a podcast, you can just be thinking about these. Maybe send me an email if you want to reply. But our questions for reflection for this lecture are, uh, the first one is, do you think there would be any problematic practical implications for believing that there is no objective meaning in written texts, as postmoderns argue. Second question is, is it reasonable to hold ancient writings to the same standards that we have for historians today? Um, and then our next two questions, our last two reflection questions for this lecture are, three, is it good to be skeptical to a point when examining ancient writings? And four, 
When examining ancient writings, do you think we should assume everything the writers wrote is false until proven true or true until proven false? And why is that? Okay. Hopefully you'll uh, get answers to these questions as we go along in this and the next couple lectures. So, um, before I get started talking about objections to historical to objective historical knowledge, I did want to discuss uh, history a little bit more. I, in the last lecture over the possibility of miracles, I talked about modern philosophy and kind of the uh, uh, how Western philosophy has viewed the world and and how and the implications that modern philosophy had on. Uh, people's uh, ideas about whether miracles are possible. Well, modern philosophy also um, had implications, or at least the modern period had implications for history. I don't think too many people in our culture realize this today, unless maybe you're a history major or something like that in college. But uh, the the way history is done today, the modern historical method, is actually the, is something that is not uh, relatively, uh, it's, it's relatively new, okay? Uh, modern, the modern historical methods actually got their start in, uh, during the Renaissance, which took place in the 14th through the 17th centuries, okay? Um, if you're familiar with what the Renaissance is, it was a period in which Europeans started to reject the older medieval philosophies of the day, and they started to go back to the to the sources to renew their knowledge. Um, okay, and because there was this big emphasis during the Renaissance on going back to the original sources, um, historical writing. Uh, it is thought became one of the most popular forms of literature in Europe in the 16th and 17th centuries. Okay, and this kind of um, this rise in historical scholarship uh, came at a time, like I said, when modern philosophy was becoming highly was 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 forming and becoming highly influential. And modern philosophers like Rene Descartes were rejecting the older medieval systems of knowledge, systems of philosophy, uh, learning about the world. And they and the modern philosophers wanted, wanted to uh, build their own brand new systems of thought that had these undoubtable foundations, uh, Rene Descartes especially. And, and they wanted to, uh, like I said, start over and, and build these systems of thought that were thought to uh, be grounded in and and reach uh, in many cases absolutely certain knowledge. Okay. Uh, so this rise in historical um, scholarship, along with the modern uh, the modern way of thinking, the new modern way where they're trying to gain absolute certain knowledge. Obviously, this uh, when these two came together. Uh, scholars, historians did believe that you could have knowledge of the past and that it was objective, okay? However, once you, when you study the history of Western thought, you'll see that um, a few centuries later, moving on into the 19th and 20th centuries, uh, there's a movement called postmodernism. Uh, postmodernists looked at this older modern um, uh, project that was that revolved around trying to find absolutely certain knowledge and the postmoderns started kind of had this knee-jerk reaction and said look um, we were promised absolute certain knowledge by the modern philosophers but we are still basically having all these old debates over all these things so we're starting to think that objective knowledge Knowledge itself, but it, but especially objective knowledge about the world, probably isn't a thing. Okay, um, and they they argued for this in many ways. But this idea that there there we can't have objective knowledge, um, especially that we can't have absolutely certain knowledge. But uh, but going even further, like postmoderns argued, we can't have objective knowledge of the world. This led to, especially in the area of history. A, a view called historical relativism, okay? And my definition of this comes from William Lane Craig's Reasonable Faith. 
Uh, he defines historical relativism as the view that all we know are historical reconstructions of the past rather than the past itself, and that no historical reconstruction can legitimately claim to be superior to alternative reconstructions. So historical relativism is basically this view that when historians study the past, they don't, uh, our knowledge, our so-called knowledge that is gained from this study of the past isn't really knowledge of the past itself because you can't have a historical reconstruction. Uh, instead, it's just like they said, it's a historical reconstruction that is no better than any other competing historical reconstruction. Uh, what one historian, uh, quote-unquote, reconstructs of the past is more of a subject, his, his or her subjective uh, beliefs about what actually happened. Okay, so uh, this historical relativism basically uh, breaks, uh, it boils down to the claim that what all historians claim about the past is, is just more of a subjective opinion and, and not, not really, um, historians aren't able to make objective statements about what really happened in the past. Instead, they're just basically sharing their opinion of what happened. And, and, and because it's a subjective opinion, one person's opinion can't be better than any other person's opinion, and no one can have a claim, an objective claim, about what really happened, okay? So, like I've been mentioning, obviously, if this were true, if something like historical relativism were true, then this would definitely be damaging to Christianity, right? Because as Christians, we go out and we not only try to teach everything Jesus commanded, right? Jesus uh, gave us the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations and teach them everything I commanded you. Uh, so not only are we trying to uh, make disciples of all nations, teach them uh, to follow what Jesus commanded, and what Jesus commanded we know uh, from the historical writings in the New Testament, but also Christianity itself is based in historical claim that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. So if we can't know anything about history, or if everything we think we know about history is just our subjective opinion, then obviously this is going to be very damaging to the gospel, and it's going to uh, make us making all these claims about Jesus basically uh, on the same uh, par as uh, making all these claims about what food you like the best. It's just some subjective, it's your subjective opinion, and that doesn't mean that anyone else has to, to do the same or, or hold the same belief, right? So we want to, as Christians, we want to make sure to answer objections to the possibility of objective historical knowledge, okay? And whenever, in order to do this, I wanted to talk about three major objections to the possibility of objective historical knowledge. There's been more than this, but these are kind of the three major ones. So if you kind of uh, understand how to answer these objections, it'll really get you pretty far. Uh, and I think this is a, a good uh, coverage of these major uh, major objections. So the three major objections we are going to look at, and, and I've done this differently throughout the series. Um, sometimes I'll, I'll mention the objections and then answer each objection immediately after I mention what it is. Uh, but this time I was going to just explain all three major objections, and then I'll get to the uh, how you would answer those, and I'm going to do that all in a row. So uh, here's the three objections I wanted to cover. The first one is the problem of direct access. The second one is the problem of lack of neutrality. And the third one is the problem of verifying miracles through history. Okay? This first one, the problem of direct access, is something... Uh, that was made famous by a historian named Charles A. Beard. Uh, he lived from 1874 to 1948 A.D. Um, and, and I have a quote from him in one of his writings. He says, and he's talking about a historian uh, studying history. He says, he cannot see it objectively as the chemist sees his test tubes and compounds. The historian must see the actuality of history through the medium of documentation. That is his sole recourse, okay? So that's kind of a statement of the problem of direct access. 
And as you can see from the quote, the problem of direct access, like Beard emphasizes, is that uh, history is not like science. In science, especially chemistry, you, you'll have a theory, and then you, when you want to test that theory, you can do so in the laboratory. You can make, for one, and the big emphasis is uh, direct access. You can make direct observations of the things that are involved in your theory. And uh, another uh, great thing about science, especially uh, fields like chemistry, you can do repeated tests over and over. If something went wrong in one test, you can just run it all over and, and see and try and fix the problem or maybe uh, you know test your theory over and over and over. And of course, you have direct access to all that. What Beard is emphasizing is that historians do not have the same access. Uh, they only have indirect access to the past. And a lot of times their evidence, it's not 100% complete either. They're, they're only maybe seeing partially what happened through, um, uh, through different types of oral and written accounts, right? So uh, he's arguing that we can't have objective knowledge of the past because the study of history is not like the study of science. Okay, the problem of lack of neutrality is another objection. The problem of lack of neutrality is, is basically just saying that um, whenever any given historian is going to have different biases and other problems that make it so that whenever he or she is writing a historical account of what happened, um, it's going to be just so influenced by these biases that you can't really trust what he or she is writing to be an objective uh, statement about what happened in, in history. And there's many different ty uh, types of claims that go into this problem. It's not just one major claim. Uh, and here's how a lot of people have, have tried to make the case for the problem of the lack of neutrality, okay? Um, uh, people have said that historians use fragments to record history, and that's problematic. Historians are a product of their environment. Historians are selective in their sources and accounts. Historians by nature structure the facts. Historians impose their worldview on history, and historians impose their values on history. So um, I'm going to talk about those as we go along. They all, they're all, I, I don't, I hope I don't, really need to explain exactly what they're saying, because I, I think whenever you hear me say what those issues are, they're pretty much self-evident what, what's going into it and why they think it's a problem uh, that historians can't be neutral. So I, I'll, I'll maybe say a little bit more about them whenever I get to them as uh, answering the, these objections. Let's move on to number three, uh, just to explain it. It's the problem of verifying miracles through history. So there's two major uh, claims that usually go along with this one. Uh, and, and it's basically the claim that you can't verify miracles through the historical method, okay? Uh, one part of this is that people say that religious history is more spiritual. Um, it's not necessarily dealing with facts as much as it's dealing with spiritual realities or spiritual lessons, okay? So, uh, this is kind of the claim that when people write about religious history, it's more like they're writing uh, mythical accounts that are, that are there not to teach us what happened, but to teach us spiritual lessons, if that makes any sense. So, because it's not really talking about um, reality like we would usually think that history is talking about reality, then uh, you, you're not really going to be able to verify it through the methods of history. Um, Another way people have tried to make this claim that you can't verify miracles through history is that uh, something that you might be familiar with at this point, since we talked about the possibility, possibility of miracles last time, is that some people have said that miracles violate the laws of nature, so professional historians must ignore them. <laughs> um, and, and then the last one is that is something called the principle of analogy that, that people making this claim use. And they say, miracles don't happen today, so it is highly likely uh, that they did not happen in the past. That's something called the principle of analogy. They say, they're basically saying, well, today we don't see miracles, so, um, um, 
So the past is probably like that. They pro We don't see them today, and they probably didn't happen in the past either. Okay, so let's talk about how we would answer these objections. Um, I've used uh, an objection like this many times before in this uh, in this lecture series. So uh, hopefully at this point um, you are already starting to catch this as it comes to you. But maybe you've already thought of this. Maybe you haven't. But a very uh, very strong uh, problem with his this claim that you can't have objective historical knowledge is that a, a, a strong form of historical skepticism or historical relativism would actually be self-defeating, right? If I were to tell you, uh, you can't have objective knowledge about the past, <laughs> what am I saying, right? Uh, aren't I making an objective claim about the past, uh, I am, right? I'm saying that you can't have objective knowledge about the past, but that very claim itself is an objective statement about the past. But if I can't have knowledge about the past, then I also can't know that I can't know about the past, right? Uh, because that, that claim that you can't have objective knowledge about the past is itself an uh, objective claim about the past. So if it's true, then it's false. So uh, people that say... Uh, that the past is unknowable. They are they're basically um, they're making a self-defeating statement, right? Or if they realize that that's self-defeating, maybe they're just saying whenever they say there is no objective uh, knowledge of the past, they're just making a subjective claim. But that is extremely self-undermining because that would just be them sharing their own opinion. So there, you, there you have it. If if Someone is saying that there can be no objective knowledge of the past. It's a self-defeating claim. Uh, but I just, obviously, I don't want to leave it there because uh, maybe, you know, not every postmodern is, is, set, is making that really strong claim, okay? Uh, maybe they're just saying, that maybe they're just saying, well, we just have reason to doubt most most things, but... Uh, but there can be knowledge of the past, but especially if you get far back enough or, or you know, most most accounts that are far back in history, we just we can't know them, although maybe we can know what happened yesterday or, or a few years ago. So I want to still uh, answer these three major objections that we talked about. So let's look at these. If you remember, the first objection we looked at was called the problem of direct access, uh, made famous by uh, Michael Beard. And... It was saying that um, history is not like science. Uh, science deals with direct evidence that you can see for yourself with your own eyes and, and, and ears and, and other ways, other empirical ways. And also it's not the history, uh, the past is not repeatable like uh, how in science they have tests that they can repeat over and over to uh, confirm or, or um, provide evidence against their theories. Okay, now, but we want to point out how, while that is true, it is not, um, it really doesn't, uh, it doesn't eliminate the possibility of objective knowledge of the past, okay? And an ironic thing is that science itself has several branches of science that do deal with the past, and scientists have no problems with making reconstructing the the past using scientific means okay you know so for example like disciplines like paleontology geology all of these work with evidence from the past and scientists have no problems believing that what they have learned about the past is objective knowledge of how what really happened uh, so so uh you know just because these scientists don't have direct access to it. They can find other ways of, of figuring that out, whether it's using, uh, you know, like math. Scientists have used math to try to determine when the universe began in cosmology, right? Um, you can think of many examples from geology where scientists believe all sorts of stuff about how the uh, everything under the surface of the earth formed and at what times. 
you know, they've run all these tests to see how old things are using carbon dating and all sorts of things. And all of this is objective knowledge of the past. Okay. It's objective knowledge claims. So, um, Beard's example using science is kind of ironic because scientists themselves think that objective knowledge of the past is possible. Uh, and and uh, there's another pro- practical problem with this uh, objection to uh, historical knowledge from the problem of direct access is that there's it's not just science. There's so many other areas of uh, Western civilization that do rely on knowledge of the past. And, and in these, we assume that we do have knowledge of the past. For example, in our court system, if everybody took the claim that we can't have objective knowledge of the past seriously, then a lot of criminals uh, would go free, right? Because if we didn't think we could have objective knowledge of the past, then uh, even if there's all this evidence that somebody killed another person, uh, that uh, the conclusions we draw from all that evidence would just be our subjective opinion, and we couldn't really send people to jail or you know to be executed for their crimes, even no matter how heinous they would be, because this would just be on the basis of our subjective opinion about what happened. So, the problem of direct access is uh, not only you know it just basically getting it wrong in how science is actually done, but it's also uh, it would be proving too much and causing us to um, causing us to. De- uh, causing our society to break down in so many ways, you know. Um, I think about, you know, weather, uh, the study of the weather and, and how um, they predict the future. They predict what's going to happen in the future based off of what we know what's happened in the past. So, I mean, you could just come up with e- even more examples than what I've already shown and why this problem of direct access really isn't a problem. And uh, so many people throughout all these different uh, areas of knowledge um, aren't bothered by it. So it's, it's strange, especially a historian like, like Beard who, who does it for a living. You think, you think he wouldn't want to make that claim because he's almost um, kind of proving that his job is, is worthless. But anyways, uh, the problem of lack of neutrality is something I wanted to answer, uh, of course, because it's one of our three major things. And uh, there's a lot to cover because we we, sh- we uh, mentioned six different claims that kind of go into this problem of lack of neutrality objection. But I was going to go ahead and, and, and just briefly say something about all six. The first one, if you remember, is this claim that historians use fragments to record history. This is basically the idea that historians aren't neutral because they don't have the whole truth. It's similar to the direct access problem. And and people say, well, they don't have the whole truth, so it's hard to be you know, neutral. You have, to, you have to interpret the data in some way, and that interpretation is going to make your, uh, your reconstruction of the past be more subjective than objective. But I think the same answer to the problem of direct access, uh, we can take that answer and use this to uh, also answer this idea that historians use fragments to record history. And you can just think of the sciences again, you know, paleontology, uh, uh, archaeology, all these different disciplines. Uh, scientists don't, might not always have the 100% all of the evidence that they need to fully reconstruct what happened, but this doesn't stop them, right? Uh, I, I think about scientists uh, finding like half of a skeleton or maybe two-thirds of a skeleton and then just using reasoning to, to determine what they think the rest of the skeleton look like. Uh, and then they make objective uh, claims about uh, different species and animals based off of these findings. So uh, this doesn't bother scientists and it doesn't bother a lot of other areas of learning. So there doesn't seem to be any reason why historians should be bothered by that either. Uh, you know, we might not, the thing is, uh, one thing that, uh, Western philosophers have learned from the, uh, modern and postmodern debate is that, yeah, absolute certain knowledge might not be obtainable in a lot of areas of knowing, but it, we don't have to have this knee jerk reaction like the postmoderns did and just assume that there's no such thing as objective knowledge anymore. Um, we just need to be careful and realize that, yeah, maybe we don't have certain knowledge. Just own up to it. Uh, but we can still be highly certain of many things. 
not 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 only things that are obviously true like mathematical truths but other areas of knowledge like history and 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 things like that we might not be 100% certain but we can still you know be pretty close to like 90% certain on a lot of things so um, so nowadays we just don't maybe you'd want to call it post postmodernism but nowadays we we believe you can have objective knowledge we just we're just not saying it's 100% certain so this uh, problem of certainty isn't a problem for us anymore okay uh, let's look at the second objection under this problem of lack of neutrality historians are a product of their environment so they can't be neutral because they're a product of their environment this is usually the claim that everybody is so steeped in their culture and the knowledge that their culture had at the time that uh, he or she, whenever reconstructing the past, can't get, they can't see the world in really any other way. Uh, but that changes as as uh, um, as our culture, as cultures change, as knowledge of the world changes. These interpretations of history are also going to change, even though the events are the same. So that's why they're trying to argue that uh, historians can't be neutral. Okay, but here's the problem with this objection. Uh, it, it would basically prove too much. Of course, we're all products of our environment. Yes, I, you know, I view the world in a certain way because I uh, grew up in the West and I learned to view the world through Western eyes. Uh, but that doesn't mean that someone else from a different culture can't come to a similar conclusion based upon the evidence, right? Uh, this argument that everyone's a product of their environment. Um, or I mean, this argument that historians are a product of their environment basically proves too much, because everyone's a product of their their environment, right? And um, this this objection is proving too much because it would it would entail that historical knowledge can't be relative. But you know what else? It would it would entail that all knowledge is relative, because uh, everybody's a product of their environment. So it doesn't matter whether you're working with history or math or science or any other discipline. Because if, if being a product of your environment means the knowledge that you're gaining is not objective, then that would mean that all knowledge that we claim to have would be subjective knowledge if being a product of your environment is a big deal. Uh, but just because you're a product of your environment, like I said, doesn't necessarily mean that your conclusions are going to be biased or, or just completely, um, yeah, like I said, completely biased and not neutral. You might... Like we said, you might have knowledge of math or, or other things that you've you've gained uh, that aren't new, um, that are neutral because what you're dealing with is an objective uh, field, and since it seems like the past is an objective thing, uh, then this uh, claim that historians are part of their environment doesn't work. For like I said, for one, it proves too much. And, um, you know, just like other forms of relativism, a really strong relativism usually is going to be self-defeating. And if being a product of your environment means that you can't have objective knowledge in history, well, guess what? It means you can't have objective knowledge in anything. But if I were to tell you that there's no such thing as objective knowledge, that itself would be a self-defeating claim. So uh, this, this, uh, this objection to historical knowledge really kind of leads to the absurd conclusion that you can't have objective knowledge at all, but that would be a self-defeating belief to hold because it, uh, saying that you can't have objective knowledge is itself an objective knowledge claim. Okay, so anyways, let's move on to this third one. Historians are selective in their sources and accounts. Um, honestly, I don't even think we have to uh, object to this objection. Uh of course, uh, historians need to be selective in their sources and accounts. Uh, just like a scientist uh, is selective in, in what he or she wants to look at when, um, when the scientist is doing a certain experiment, right? You, scientists can't just make all these unbiased observations of every single thing that they see uh, whenever they're uh, getting ready for work and, and driving to work and going into the lab. They can't just make these unbiased, unguided observations all day long, they, they'd never get to their, their experiment, right? They have to choose what they're going to look at and what they're not going to look at. Well, in the same way, when a historian is studying the past, he or she is going to read everything they can to kind of focus in on what they want to look at, and then they're going to determine uh, which sources are good ones and which sources aren't, and which sources they should look at and which, which sources they shouldn't even consider, 
But that doesn't mean that uh, their reconstruction of the past is not going to be objective. Uh, because, why is that? Well, uh, for one, historians don't just make up the sources, right? Uh, the sources are available because uh, that's just what happened in history. Certain people talked about the events. The historians don't choose what his, what um, uh, what sources exist, so that's an objective process, right? His, history, reality determines what a historian is even going to be uh, able to look at in the first place. Uh, but two, uh, there's a careful system in place that ensures that historians are uh, looking at history and studying history in the in the right ways, uh, right? We've got uh, first of all, uh, historians are trained in in uh, in universities. They get their PhD in it, and they are trained to um, study history in the correct ways. But also, even then, whenever they want to write about history, this is usually done through a peer review process where other experts on the same topic look at what the historian is saying, and they double-check the, the sources, double-check the facts, double-check the evidence. So um, just because historians are selective in their sources and accounts doesn't necessarily mean that uh, their reconstruction of the past is going to be subjective, right? And uh, this claim that historians by nature structure the facts Really, you can say the exact same reply to that objection. Just because historians uh, need to be selective in what they do and do not discuss whenever they're talking about uh, what happened in the past, just because that doesn't make objective. So also, just because historians uh, need to structure the facts in a way to, you know, they're, they're piecing together uh pieces of, the, of a puzzle, and the puzzle that they're trying to put together is an overall picture of what actually happened. Well, uh, historians, like I said, they don't determine what facts are and are not out there that they can consider, and they don't determine, I mean, they will determine how they structure those facts, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're, how they structure the facts is going to be only uh, subjective, right? Uh uh, it, it's going to be, it might be their opinion, but what they're saying is that their opinion is highly probable based on some evidence. So uh, it's going to be their professional opinion and their opinion is formed by the evidence. Like I said, the evidence is objective. It's not stuff that they just make up. So that doesn't, so just because they structure the facts by nature of being historian doesn't necessarily mean that their reconstruction is going to be subjective. So moving on, we have two more objections that are part of this problem of the lack of neutrality. Uh, the, the second to last is historians impose their worldview on history. The last one is historians impose their values on history. Okay, so let's take a look at this historians impose their worldview on history. This is similar to that objection that historians are a product of their environment. Uh, this is the idea that, and if you aren't familiar with the term worldview, I have used it a handful of times in this series a worldview, uh, basically, if you think about, uh, for example, if you think about every belief that you have about the world, the way the world is, what's happened in the past, what the world is like today, maybe what the world, what's going to happen in the world uh, in the future, that uh, if you put all those beliefs about reality, you put them all in one place, that's going to be your worldview. And what this objection is saying is that uh, the historian basically looks at the world through the lens of his or her worldview and then imposes that way of looking at the world on history. And since different people might have different worldviews, when they impose their worldview on history, that means that two different people might look at the same two historical accounts and come to two different conclusions because they're viewing the accounts through their worldview. So they argue that this makes uh, historical conclusions more subjective than objective. But uh, this is not a good objection for a, a couple of reasons. So uh, now the first thing is that we don't have to, uh, you don't have to say that this is false, that, that people don't see the world through their worldview because that is just true. Yes, we all do have our beliefs about reality, and we view the world through that, right? Because that's just what we think reality is. You have your specific worldview, 
And so, like, for example, my worldview as a Christian, someone who believes that God exists and Jesus rose from the dead, I think that those are actual things that happen in history. Uh, but my belief that Christianity is true might entail things about reality that other people wouldn't believe, right? So, like, I believe that uh, angels and demons exist. So maybe if I see someone uh, who's like who's gained uh, superhuman strength and speaking in different languages, I'm going to interpret that as someone who's demon possessed, for example. But someone who doesn't believe that demons and angels exist might just think that person has gone crazy, and that explains their behavior. But you can see how different worldviews will entail how you interpret different things. But here's the thing. Uh, Yes, we all view the world to our, our own worldview, but this doesn't mean that necessarily all of your conclusions all of a sudden are subjective, okay? Uh, and this, this, this is because worldviews aren't just subjective beliefs, okay? Um, so I would, I would argue that my view of the world Maybe I have views that are wrong in some other fields, like maybe I, I hold to some beliefs about science of the world that are more um, uh, mythical, or maybe not mythical is a, a good word to use, but maybe I have some views about the world that if I had a better understanding of science, I would realize that those views are wrong. I'm not saying that everything I, I, I believe is 100% correct, but my my view of the world... Uh, as a Christian, I would say, is the correct way to view the world, at least in terms of believing that there is a uh, all-good, all-knowing, all-powerful God who created and sustains the universe and existence and the belief that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, right? But that worldview is has, in a major way, been determined by objective evidence, Right? Whenever I talk about God existing, I point to the way the world is, and I would argue that you have to conclude that there must be a God who has who caused it and sustains it, right? And whenever, and we'll talk about this when we get into all the evidence for Jesus' resurrection. I would argue that the historical evidence is such that it's overwhelming. You you must conclude that Jesus Christ really did rise from the dead. But I didn't come to this worldview solely on the basis of subjective desires or subjective opinion, I came to this worldview conclusion because of the objective evidence, right? So the thing is, your worldview might partly entail uh, subjective beliefs, but a lot of times your worldview is determined by objective things in reality. So there can be some things that I might see with my own eyes or whatever, um, that would cause me to change my worldview in various ways. It doesn't have to be a huge change. I don't. I might not uh, change from theism to pantheism, but maybe I'm still a theist. But I just change my this or that belief about reality that doesn't have that big of implications. But my overall worldview, if you think of it as every single belief you have about reality, put them all together, that's your worldview. Yeah, I might change my beliefs about reality in in, in a handful of places. And that might change my worldview in, in small or big ways. Uh, but like I said, because your worldview isn't completely determined subjectively, so also when you look at the world through the lens of your worldview, that doesn't necessarily mean that uh, your conclusions are always going to be 100% in line with your worldview. Maybe you saw some new evidence uh, that makes you tweak your worldview just a little bit. So just because you look at the world through that worldview doesn't necessarily mean that everything you come to, every conclusion you draw is going to be subjective. Uh, maybe you're going to change your worldview. Uh, worldviews are, are not completely rigid. So, so just because um, you view the world through that, like I said, it doesn't mean every conclusion you reach is going to be a subjective conclusion. Okay, let's talk about this last one. Historians impose their values on history. Um, some people have argued that historians aren't neutral because they impose their values on uh, historical accounts. And I don't, I don't know. I think we'd need to spend more time to fully explain why they think this, uh, well, you know, they, they'll, they'll argue that, uh, historic historians use their views on what is, uh, what is wrong and right. And they kind of impose this on the stories as they're talking and because what you view is right, right and wrong might be different from individual to individual, they argue that when you impose your values on history, 
your accounts are be, becoming more subjective than objective. Well, uh, first, as we already discussed on during that lecture on um, ethical objectivism, <laughs> I would argue that ethics aren't uh, ethics aren't relative, right? We always want to we always want to uh, argue that ethics are objective. Uh, so just because two people might have two different beliefs on what's right and wrong doesn't necessarily mean that their conclusions are going to be subjective uh, because maybe one person is right and what he or she believes is, is right and wrong and the other one's just simply wrong in what his or her ethical beliefs. So uh, that just because people might have different ethical beliefs doesn't necessarily mean that their conclusions are going to be subjective because that, that just might entail that one person is right and his or her conclusions, the other one's wrong. <laughs> um, but also... Here's the thing. It's okay uh, as long as the historian is trying his or her best to be completely neutral or, or excuse me, not completely neutral. But as, as long as the historian is trying uh, his or her best to stay as neutral and as objective as possible, it's okay to make um, value judgments on on different peoples and, and different individuals in history, right? I mean, that's one of the major reasons to study history is to avoid mistakes that have happened in the past, right? So whenever you uh, study some historical account and you come to the conclusion that the people in the account were acting uh, ethically wrong, uh, then that's fine. That's one of the reasons why we study history is to avoid making the same mistakes. So there's actually nothing wrong with imposing your values on history. It's one of the major ways we learn about the world and how we should move forward. So it's re I honestly don't think that's a problem at all. It's either based in this uh, belief that ethics are relative themselves, uh, which we've already argued is, is uh, uh, the wrong belief to have, uh, or it is just um, saying that you shouldn't judge other people, but uh, that's kind of one of the reasons why we do history, right? So I don't think that's a problematic account. So uh, while all of those claims, all six put together, might make it sound really terrible, uh, we've, we've seen how... Um, uh, historians, while we all do have biases and we all aren't neutral in many ways, as long as historians are being careful to be uh, as neutral as possible, um, I don't think any of those proves that history uh, must be subjective, okay? Or our knowledge of history must be subjective. And then lastly, let's talk about this third problem that we discussed, the problem of verifying miracles through history, uh, this objection that professional historians can't uh, make conclusions about the historicity of miracle claims because as professional historians, um, for some reason or another, they either need to ignore miracle claims or they just can't make a conclusion on it because it uh, violates science. <clears throat> well, let's talk about this. Um, if you remember, one thing I said is that the uh, problem of verifying miracles through history. One claim that people make is that uh, professional historians should realize that uh, when, when someone writes a, a, a quote-unquote spiritual history, that person is not necessarily making claims about what really happened. Usually that person is just trying to teach a spiritual or moral lesson. Okay, so quote unquote spiritual history is not like is not like real history where uh, people are just straight up trying to tell uh, of, of events that happened in the past. But now, uh, while this may be true for some types of literature, you know, I've heard that um, a lot of figurative language is used in some ancient mythical writings and they really are just trying to teach moral lessons or or just kind of give an entertaining story, or trying to explain the origins of peoples through these uh, mythical events. Uh, while that might be true of some historical, uh, quote-unquote, spiritual histories, it's not true of the New Testament especially. It's not true of the Old Testament. There's so many different places in the Bible where the author just straight up says, this is what happened in history. So, uh, but especially like what we saw already with our first verse that I showed you from uh, the, the first few verses in, in the Gospel of Luke. Luke is claiming that this is history, that these events in the Gospel 
happened. He went and collected sources. He went and talked to the eyewitnesses and compiled it all together to let someone know exactly what happened in history. So so this idea that spiritual history isn't real history, while that might apply to some religions or or some miracle stories, it doesn't apply to the New Testament because the authors are saying that this is this is real history, okay? Uh, another thing we want to emphasize is that uh, if someone is saying that you can't verify miracles through history, if they're thinking that miracles aren't possible in the first place, well, you just need to go back to that last lecture we talked about and argue uh, similar to what we did there. And if you didn't see that, I would recommend you go look at that lecture. Uh, but we were basically making the point that if the arguments for God's existence are sound, uh, which we would say they are, uh, then that makes miracles possible in the first place. If there's a God who created and sustains the world and is regulating uh, everything that happens in nature, there's nothing uh, there's nothing wrong and is actually very rational to believe that that same God could interfere in history and interfere in those regularities and appear to people and, and talk to us or, 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 or do things like raise people from the dead or make bushes set on fire but not burn. Um, so anyways, if God exists, then miracles are possible. So that's, that's, why, that's our major uh, reason for believing that miracles are possible. But let's talk about this principle of analogy. Okay, Um, I've got a specific definition of it in addition to what I've already said about it. But uh, the principle of of analogy is the view that if one does not experience or observe miracles today, then it would be wrong to believe that they happened in the past. Okay, it's what they call the principle of analogy. And this was that claim that I mentioned where they say, well, miracles don't happen today, therefore they probably didn't happen in the past. So as a professional historian, if you come across a Uh, an account that includes a miracle in it, then you can just ignore that claim. You know, and and that's a question that we actually asked in the, in the, as a discussion question in the last lecture. The thing is historians, they don't throw out an entire uh, historical account just because one part of that account includes someone saying that a miracle happened, right? What uh, a lot of times, uh, what some of them do is that they say, okay, well, I'm just going to ignore that claim, but I'm still going to study everything else they said that happened that doesn't involve a miracle. So just because some historical account does include maybe a a claim to the miraculous here and there, the historian doesn't throw the entire thing out. He or she still tries to figure out if there's other things that they think happened. Uh, But... if a historian says that because miracles don't happen today, they probably didn't happen in the past, there's problems with this, okay? There's problems with the principle of analogy that we want to point out. If someone doesn't think that you can have his, uh, historical knowledge of uh, miracles happening, uh, there's problems with this claim to the principle of analogy. Okay, so the, the first one is that this claim uh, that miracles don't happen today, therefore they didn't happen in the past, it's pretty much just assuming that miracles don't happen. It's not proving it, right? It's not, and of course, you know, it's, it's, it's known in logic and philosophy that it's extremely hard to prove a negative, right? If, if I'm trying to prove that God doesn't exist, right? Um, I, it, you know, it's a negative claim. So a lot of times since it's a negative claim, you're just going to have to point why you think all the positive claims about God's existence are wrong. But to prove that God doesn't, doesn't exist is extremely hard, if, if impossible. The same thing with this. This is saying that miracles don't happen. So how would you even prove that? This, this principle analogy really is just more like the assumption that miracles don't happen uh, because we don't see them. Um, but it's not proving that miracles don't happen, right? And so because of that, uh, let's let's think about if, if the principle of analogy were true, that just because something doesn't happen today, then it didn't happen in the past. Well, uh, another major problem with this is that that actually proves too much, right? There's a lot of things that aren't happening today that haven't happened in my lifetime that did happen in the past, right? Uh, for example, we don't see any dinosaurs walking around today. Dinosaurs don't exist anymore. But we think they did happen and the, they did exist in the past. Uh, but if the principle of analogy is true, then I, I can't 
say that dinosaurs existed, even though maybe we have dinosaur bones, because I don't see any dinosaurs walking around today. Uh, so I would say, well, the dinosaurs don't exist today, so therefore they didn't exist in the past. Nope. No one believes that, right? We think that we can put together, we can reconstruct what we think did exist in the past based on the evidence that we see. And it's the same way with miracles. Okay. The, the problem is that people just have a problem with miracles a lot of times because of their worldview, right? Maybe they don't believe uh, in God. So they don't think that miracles are possible in the first place. They think everything happens, has to happen according to the laws of nature. Um, but again, if, if someone says uh, if something didn't happen today, it doesn't happen in the past, well, that would prove too much, right? Because there's a lot of things that happen that don't happen today that happen, we think happened in the past. Um, and finally, what I want to say is that this principle of analogy, if someone holds to this, he or she is ignoring all the evidence for miracles today, right? Um, I've mentioned before this book uh, by Craig Keener. It's a two-volume set. One of the books, he talks extensively about all sorts of uh, evidence for miracles that have happened today. He was kind of acting like Luke, and he went around and interviewed a lot of people. Some of the miracles he claims to have seen himself. Other miracles, he just looks at evidence and stories that people give. And uh, if someone says, well, miracles don't happen today, well, that person is just ignoring all the evidence for miracles actually happening today. So the principle of analogy is not only just kind of a wrong way to think about the issue, but it's also just it's just factually incorrect because it does seem like there is evidence for miracles happening today. So if they are happening today, so also it seems like they would be happening in the past. Um so yeah, that's how we would answer the principle of analogy. It proves too much, and it's just it's just wrong. <laughs> so uh, th- that's all I have on on the this uh, question of the uh, whether historical knowledge can be objective or not. Let me go ahead and reread these questions for reflection, and we'll close this out. So the first one is: Do you think there would be any problematic practical implications for believing that there is no objective meaning in written text, as postmoderns argue? Two, is it reasonable to hold ancient writings to the same standards that we have for historians today? Three, is it good to be skeptical to a point when examining ancient writings? And finally, uh, four, when examining ancient writings, do you think we should assume everything the writers wrote is false until proven true or true until proven false and why? Um, and I want to leave you with our another our Frank Turk quote. I think moving forward, we're going to be switching out quotes here pretty soon, if not in this next lecture and the one after that. Uh, but this quote is from Frank Turek's book, Stealing from God, Why Atheists Need God to Make Their Case. He says, if there is a God who created the universe, then he can do whatever he wants that's not logically impossible inside the universe. Okay. Um, like I do at the end of all of these, I want to quickly um, uh, uh, recommend to you Southern Evangelical Seminary and Bible College. This is a seminary where I got my degree in um, uh, my master's degree in apologetics, PhD in philosophy and religion. Uh, SES is a great seminary and Bible college. Uh, they have everything from certificates to bachelor's degrees to master's degrees and PhDs. Um, you, obviously, you can learn about the Bible, you can learn theology, but you can also learn a lot of good philosophy, and, uh, and especially they emphasize apologetics. So I highly recommend it. Um, they have uh, most of their degrees are online and face-to-face, so you can choose. You can either go down there to, uh, to North Carolina to check them out in person and live in the town and and hang out with all the students and the professors, or you can take these classes from just about anywhere uh, in the world online. So uh, it's very accessible no matter where you are, and uh, I highly recommend it. Um, Also, SES has a free resource available. If you haven't heard about it, I recommend it. It is a free uh, uh, PDF, about a 50-page little booklet on uh, apologetics. It's titled, Why Trust the God of the Bible? And you can access that by going to SES's website. It's ses.edu. Hover over the media button, and there will be a link that says, Why Trust the God of the Bible? Click on that, and you can get that free apologetics resource. I'd also like to recommend to you Kingdom Preparatory Academy. It's a uh, classical Christian school. Uh, pre-K through 12th grade in Lubbock, Texas. It's where my kids go and where I taught uh, this 
uh, where I came up with this material and taught it uh, on apologetics. Um, I taught it to juniors and seniors. It was actually a dual credit course. Uh, but yes, I, I love this school. If you are looking for a classical Christian alternative to education in Lubbock, Texas, I highly recommend it. It's a university model, so students only go to school from uh, on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays usually. Um, different ages vary a little bit. And uh, you don't even have to go. The students don't even have to go on Friday. They can choose just to go on Monday and Wednesday if that's uh, how you want to do it. But it's it's very flexible. But this the academics are very rigorous, and um, and we love it. You know, it's a it's classical education, so they teach you, teach your kids how to think, not what to think. And of course, it's all grounded in the Bible, and they teach. Uh, everything in the context of the kingdom of God and the truth of uh, Jesus' uh, death on the cross for our sins. So I ri- highly recommend Kingdom Preparatory Academy. If you want to learn more about it, you can go to kingdomprep.org. Uh, but in our next lecture, uh, we are going to be talking about the reliability of the New Testament manuscripts. So I hope you'll uh, be there to learn about that, and I hope you have a great day.